Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. Willow Walsh. And Reagan Skaggs. And you're listening to... Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And Roots is open for full in-person business at 108 East Lincoln Way in Valparaiso. And also a thanks to Michael and Kelly Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. They are brand new underwriters to our show. Thank you so much. The music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today, we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive titled Watching Fires and War Zone. So we're going to go ahead and play the stories and pause in between each to have a conversation about what the storytellers experience. And Alison, do you want to talk a little bit about why you chose these two stories today? Yeah, this actually is from a set of, well, an interview I did between the two separate storytellers via Zoom uh, during the pandemic when they are co-creating a theater production piece that also happened, um, had to happen through Zoom because of the pandemic. Mm. So um, we're going to hear their separate biographical stories today, but I think there's a lot of resonance between them um, because of the fact that they found themselves uh, drawn to work together in other creative ways, uh, theater productions in particular. So um, if you end up liking what you hear today and you want to hear more about their creative project together, you can go to our website, welcomeproject.belpo.edu, and look up the story Connective Tissue. And it's kind of cool to see how their two personal stories meld into this larger creative project they did during the pandemic. Cool. Yeah. All right. So the first one then is titled Watching Fires. I grew up in Dorchester, Massachusetts. It's right in the city of Boston. My family was the second African-American, Afro-Caribbean family to move on our street. And it was formerly a, a Jewish neighborhood. And it was one of those neighborhoods in Boston where white flight was quite prevalent as a practice. Many homes and, and like whole streets of homes were burned down by the former residents rather than to sell the property to um, Black people. But, you know, Boston, maybe you don't know, is very famous for for these uh, fires. And um, there were lots of people who liked to go and just like enjoy watching houses burn down. And they were called um, Fire Starters. It was like their happy name. Arthur Fiedler, the famed uh, conductor of the Boston Pops, was a, a famed person that liked to do that. He even had a little fire hat that he would wear to those events. I saw homes burn down. We didn't talk about it, but it was very scary. And to this day, I'm sort of haunted by nightmares of house fires. I actually have a play, a, a solo performance that chronicles uh, watching fires. I wanted to do it as an invitation for the public to have a personal experience with my private life, um, because those are things that a lot of people don't know. I think particularly, I don't know anything about how other people see other people, but I do know I recently had a reading of a play and after the reading of the play, I asked the people what the play was about. And they said it was about poor black people living in the ghetto. And I said, where in the text does it say that? It says it's the holiday time, people are putting up Christmas lights. It says people are playing records, people are dancing, people are eating. They're inside the house. Where does it say they're for? They never mention mortgages not being paid or lights being cut off, right? Yes, they're Black, but no other part of their humanity could be seen beyond the color of their skin. And it really made me, made me sad. It's really sad. But I wanted somebody to see the humanity and the grace that I grew up in and what my parents gave to me. The year that my family moved into the house, they bought it mainly because I was being born. My father started a homeowners association 
And um, interestingly, a part of that homeowners association was an annual gathering. It's really, it's a block party, but it, it is an annual gathering. And this is the first year of um, the COVID that it hasn't taken place. Belonging is a lot related to, I guess, home because I've never, I never moved. We've always lived in that same house. I do associate it, I think, more strongly with ancestral home and culture because my neighborhood is very strongly an Afro-Caribbean neighborhood. Actually, there's a lot of African-American foods I have never tasted and don't know how to cook. And people always, you don't know how to cook that? I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> so um, the one thing that kind of spilled over from African-American communities into our community was social dance. We would have parties practically every weekend where we would play records and my mother and father took dance lessons so they knew ballroom and all these different styles of dancing. I took dance classes when I was a child. When I was in kindergarten, the first thing that my friends and I would do some dances, like show me some moves. And then we like all moved together. Like, okay, we got a little dance on for 15 minutes and okay, now we can get the school day started. I remember my, my best friend in junior high would, would call me up, come on over, I'll teach you this new dance. Um, everything was really related to this idea of moving together. I actually do feel like I, I mourn for that. Basketball is a kind of dance and, you know, hearing the, the rhythm of the ball bouncing on the ground and hearing the guys running around making sounds, it's been silenced by this disease. And you can have these games in empty stadiums, but the game actually starts in the community and the children aren't playing. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte and Willa Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. And you're listening at WVLP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. And we also stream live at WVLP.org. And today we're playing some stories from the Welcome Project archive that take us a little bit beyond the geographical range that we typically um, talk about here in Northwest Indiana going all the way to Boston, and later, if you stay tuned, we're going to Northern Ireland. So uh, we just heard a story from someone who grew up in a Boston neighborhood. She uh, identifies as Afro-Caribbean, and she's told us a little bit about um, her neighborhood growing up and also her family, a little bit about her life as a, as an, a, a writer, a, a theater writer, um, and some of the cultural support that she has inherited. And so I thought we would start out by just asking, like, what stands out to you two um, about the storyteller's description of fires, like in the first part of her story? What do you notice that she's sharing with us there? I mean, I feel like we have two contrasting stories of like community and togetherness, right? Taking place in the same, the same area. So her Boston neighborhood as this wonderful place where there's block parties and it's like a big Afro-Caribbean neighborhood and like all this togetherness and like knowing your neighborhood and in that same neighborhood like just before that or seemingly a little bit during that we also have like presumably the white community um, also gathering in their community also celebrating but celebrating by burning down real estate so that mm -hmm. people like her cannot live there it is a terrible contrast <laughs> Yeah, I actually assumed the neighborhood association was like a an outgrowth of more black families actually moving into the neighborhood. And so it would have been either post fires or like transitioning out of that time period. Um, it's also interesting because she mentions it was previously a Jewish neighborhood, which means that there probably was a cultural community prior to the Afro-Caribbean mm -hmm. families moving in that also held that community together. So it's jarring um, that potentially what is worth celebrating led to this kind of friction that in this case, white residents chose to, I don't like, I don't want to soften the decision to actually burn property rather than be either a part of an integrated neighborhood or watch the neighborhood turn over. Yeah, I mean, I think for me it was like when they had, she calls it fire starters is their happy name because it is, it like, it, like the connotation sounds really like, 
I don't know, it's not, the gravity of it isn't there. It's like, yeah, we're going to go watch houses burn down. Like, that's so, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because then it's not just this one neighborhood, right? She mentions it in the context of Boston Mm -hmm. as a city. Mm -hmm. So that's hard to wrap one's mind around. Um, I've just been teaching... Uh, MLK's uh, Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail to my students in my core classes. And that was part of the Birmingham campaign that took place in 1963. Um, And I'm always struck by our, my assumption and what I imagine for many of my students who come from the North is this assumption of this was all happening in the South. Mm-hmm. And this is a kind of <laughs> obvious like corrective mm-hmm. to that false narrative that we sometimes have here about where this sort of oppression and like violence against integration was actually taking place. I really like that it just it kind of like echoes the same things that we've been hearing from Gary, like white flight and people being really upset about property and, and leaving. And we know there were like redlining practices that were happening in Gary. And so listening to it happening on the other side of the country, it's something that happens. And then I, this also makes me think of like Raisin in the Sun and Clybourne mm-hmm. Park. And like then that was was that like based in Chicago? Chicago. So it's like so this is definitely something that's very prevalent that's happening across the north that we can see not just in these secluded locations, but all over. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, again, coming back to, like, the the South versus the North, um, what a lot of people associate with, like, Southern racism or, like, Southern violence, like, based on race is, like, you know, very viscerally violent. Like, they think of, like, the burning crosses. They think of lynchings, all Mm -hmm. of these terrible things. Church bombings. Church bombings. And those things absolutely happen. Uh, happened and continue to happen but with the north like yeah it seems those violent things happen in the north too but a lot of times yeah it seems like economically based so often the like violence that is perpetrated Mm -hmm. against people of color it is we are burning our houses down so that you cannot live here that is insane Mm -hmm. and it is so like money oriented that it's hard for me to wrap my head around (laughs) Yeah, that actually feels like a little bit of a difference between some of what we heard in our flight path stories where the white families talk about having to sell their house for less than it was worth and take a hit economically, Mm -hmm. Um, which doesn't mean to say that things like what we're hearing in this story didn't happen in Gary, although I wonder if it had a different nature to it. Like I've always heard of violence being used to keep black families out mm-hmm. as opposed to a kind of this almost sounds like a sort of um uh salting of the earth yeah but like a like a kind of okay you've moved in and now we're gonna make you pay by like damaging all the houses mm-hmm. around you as the rest of us leave mm-hmm. um which is a little bit different and i don't know if that means that the white families in this particular neighborhood had the financial means to do that Mm -hmm. or maybe if it's a citywide thing insurance companies are looking they're in on it a little lightly Mm -hmm. on the causes of these things i yeah i would have to research that part of it for sure Mm -hmm. um what do you think the storyteller is uh capturing when she's talking about reading her play um it's a little bit of a transition that she's making there between fires um and like what happens when she tries to share something of her and her community and uh, their like personal story with audiences. Like what, um, yeah, what is she trying to get at when she talks about reading her play? I mean, there's, she's grappling with the thing that a lot of people of color, um, LGBT people, people of a minority experience or deal with where they're like, well, there is one story for somebody that looks like you or that is like you. And that one story is that you were black and you were poor and you either come from a broken family or something else along those lines. And she's dealing with that, the repercussions of that stereotype. I'm just like, so not surprised that she can have this sort of like, what sounds like this like really lush story about all of these experiences that she has in this neighborhood 
And then when she asks, presumably a white audience member, like what they got from the story, they say that it was about poor black people living in the ghetto. And she's going through in her mind, like, where does it say that in the play? Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's like it doesn't. It's just, and what she goes on further to say, it's just like, yes, they're black and their humanity cannot be seen behind the color of their skin. So like, despite this sort of like rich narrative that she's given about this neighborhood life, people are still clinging on to these sort of like default stereotypes mm-hmm. that they're still viewing this narrative with these like with these stereotypes in their context so like they even with this play that it feels like I don't know play is such like a I don't know like an engaging form of like entertainment like it's just it's really personal it should be really like detaching like you should really be engaging with it and so it's it's so crazy that people can like sit there and absorb this play with these characters and still, like, they cannot tackle this sort of, like, stereotypical racism that, like, colors their impression of the entire play. No, all they heard was, this is about a black family, and presumably this is about a black family that lives in a neighborhood with a lot of other black families. Therefore, this is about a, ghetto. Mm, yeah. a poor family surrounded by other poor families in a badly, like, maintained ma- neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely an interesting point of connection between the childhood experience because those families, those white families that were fleeing the neighborhood, willing to burn property instead of sell it, um, that was also built on that same assumption that somehow black residents, especially cumulatively, have to mean poverty, have to mean Mm -hmm. something about like a, a lack of sort of moral character and I mean, I actually feel like I got some of that growing up. It was like this background message, um, just that um, black people don't take care of their neighborhoods. That's Mm -hmm. why they look Mm -hmm. so run down. Like there was not any understanding, even for black families that do have to live in poverty or are somehow still um, held back by poverty, that it has to do with systems um, that have kept wealth from black families as opposed to something about moral character. Mm-hmm. So I feel like even what she's describing as an adult playwright <laughs> reading to an audience, um, yeah, those, I don't know, this, a lot of those stereotypes have not shifted much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, My grandparents still talk about that. Like that's still how they view things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like my grandma does the same thing. She gets so far along, and then she's like talking about all the Democrats on MSNBC, and I'm like, "Go, grandma!" And then she's like, "But I work, I worked with a, a black woman in 1968, and this is like colored my impression of this like entire because one people. black woman, like exactly, is every like, oh black my gosh, woman. it's just like it permeates. Just hmm. how do you hear this storyteller trying to uh, correct? that by talking about what she says is the humanity and grace of her upbringing. Like, do you see examples that she brings to the surface for us? Well, see, that's, I don't know. For me, I don't think she's intentionally necessarily, I mean, maybe she is. I'm not familiar with her other work beyond this particular story. It doesn't sound super like that's what she's attempting to do. It sounds like she's just trying to tell stories Mm -hmm. from what she knows, which is a common thing both within writing and especially if she's doing the kind of theater that is a little more like memoir-esque, a little more like autobiographical, extremely common. Solo theater is like, I don't know, it's, it's that way most of the time. So it sounds like she's not trying necessarily to like actively create this alternative narrative. It's like she is just doing fictionalized, I assume, versions of her own narrative or narratives of the people that she knew and loved. Yeah. No, I think that's important. Um, I was actually thinking less about the play and more about, like, the rest of the edited story. Mm -hmm. But I think that's super important to note (laughs) that somebody who's just being an artist, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like, might... uh, be seen by somebody in this case me as like needing to compensate in some way for their audience's failures to be able to perceive what has been given to them in the just the basics of the play Mm -hmm. um yeah so that's fair yeah I was thinking about the rest of the story um and that like the the sort of like uh the humanity and grace that she grew up in in terms of like 
this block party that happened and I love oh I love when she talks about group dance Mm -hmm. and like I there's a youtuber that I watch um wheezy waiter who just he does like things like for a month to see like how it is like quit sugar for a month exercise every day for a month go to bed early but his last month that he just did it was like dance for 15 minutes every day Mm -hmm. so he kind of like analyzes this process and he's like I felt so much better every single day like I just so it's just I don't know it's just like when I hear this, I just, I get happy and I, I feel like I understand like the richness of her experience and I'm just still frustrated that it, that it can be lost on audiences, just devalued as just like black people in a ghetto, even though she has so many experiences that kind of like counteract that analysis. This is WVLP 103.1 FM, and you're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. Um, Today, we're talking about a storyteller who grew up in Boston. She is um, describing her neighborhood growing up, her family, her community, and uh, we're starting to touch on now this idea of social dance that she grew up with as a kid. And I do think what's interesting about dance is like, yes, individually it can do something for you as you move your body right and I think we I don't know who the we is there is it like Americans is it white Americans is it white Protestant Americans is it Midwesterners <laughs> like uh, I was gonna say we uh, like can forget like the power or wisdom or energy that comes from like actually engaging the body instead of just the mind or something like that um Anyway, so like as a dancer, like an individual dancer, you're going to get something out of just moving. There's some power in movement. But Mm -hmm. like when you do it with a community, um, there's something additional that happens. It's not just a single body. It's like bodies, multiple. And not that they're all necessarily having to move in unison, but something coming from like it's kind of like a call and response maybe even that can happen, Mm -hmm. but with the body instead of through like the voice. I just feel like it must feel so nice, like, because I think, like, I feel like I wouldn't dance in front of every, anybody unless I had, like, I don't know, a few drinks or something, but, like, <laughs> you know, it's just, like, there's a vulnerability to mm-hmm. it, there's a sort of, like, trust that you're building with the people around you. I think about, like, when I was in choir and you were, like, standing up on these risers, like, shoulder to shoulder with all of these other people, and it's so quiet at the beginning of things that I remember we used to have to, like practice um blowing air in our mouth because like when you would open your mouth like you can hear that like that gums on your teeth like that you could hear that with like 70 people but I remember like there were times when we like cried in choir because it was just like there's something Mm -hmm. so wonderful about like standing with a bunch of people and like creating something collectively that just yeah so it's just so I think so it makes so much sense for me that she must have felt like that, like the richness of the bonds that she's sharing with other people, and like trying to convey that in her plays, and then for people not to understand like how important that was or impactful that was for her. Yeah, I'm being looked at. <laughs> Just checking in to see if you have thoughts about it. I mean, we could expand the question to like how she defines belonging because I think we're talking about that a little bit, and I wonder if it's similar to ways that we all define belonging or if our way of defining it is different based on our own experiences. Do you have thoughts about that, Reagan? Like how she's defining belonging? I mean, I don't know. It feels, it's just the whole thing feels a little rough and not because of her, but because of the things that she has had to go through Hmm. simply because again of the the way that she looks like there's an assumed singular cultural experience Mm -hmm. and there is a a lack of assumed violence with that cultural experience or the wrong kind of violence i guess like so like finding belonging and then trying to share her belonging like turning out so poorly for her is you know disheartening um i wonder if we're just getting too fixated on the single moment And maybe it's because I was a part of the larger interview and I know that that was a powerful experience for her. But I think like when she's thinking about belonging as home and ancestry and culture, it's broader than just her experience as a playwright. Mm -hmm. Um, But I might be misreading that. No, yeah. I mean, it's super... 
I don't know. I always think it's really cool when people have like a strong sense of, of background and have like a strong like cultural connection to that and have like, I don't know, almost like a designated place. Like this neighborhood sounds like a designated place in which to have that strong sense of belonging. So that's, you know, that's really cool. Yeah. I think that it's, um, pretty clear because she can actually distinguish between being African-American, which like people would assume of any person who presents as black in America and then wanting to specify it's Afro-Caribbean and that there's enough cultural difference that there's foods that she Mm -hmm. doesn't know how to Mm -hmm. cook Mm -hmm. (laughs) that people would assume she would be knowing how Mm -hmm. and she must have food that she can cook that like I would guess uh, um, people that have their roots in whatever African-American means Mm -hmm. I'm I'm hearing that as like Southern culture so I'm guessing like collard greens and beans and things like that but um Afro-Caribbean is going to have like jerk seasonings and different kinds of spices that come out of the Caribbean. So, um, yeah, that the sense that you have a particular people mm-hmm. to belong to, mm-hmm. I think is pretty cool. Um, and do either of you feel like you have that or do you put your belonging when you've experienced it elsewhere? I don't know, like, when I read this, I think about, like, I don't know, like, my queer identity and a sense of belonging, because that doesn't feel down to a specific place, but it does feel more like, I don't know, we were talking about this a couple episodes ago, like, talking about, like, the gay checklist, and so it's like, where do I find people that are like me or that would be supportive of me? So it's just like, yeah, it does feel like it moves a little bit based on what you need but I'm trying to think of like when it would be I don't know but we've also talked about like the importance of support systems in terms of like homelessness in northwest Indiana and like the suburban areas like how important that is and so it would make sense to me that like having a home support system that would give you that great sense of belonging I don't know but it's like it obviously varies because I'm like I don't think of that at home it's like my family is supportive thankfully but it's just like I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't feel like my, my great sense of belonging at home with like my cold NPR family. Like it just doesn't work that way. I don't know. So mine's shifting, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't think I have a sense of belonging based off of identity for the most okay. part. I will say like, I also have a wonderfully supportive family. Um, and I really love being at home and I love my brothers being ridiculous and all this other fun stuff. But then when I do hang out with like other LGBT people, like I hang out with Willow and her not wife, her lovely not wife. Um, and like my two of my very good friends that are part of the LGBT community just got married. Like I, it is a different vibe mm. kind of, but it's a very conditional thing. Like it's not like we are all solidarity creating a space together, which I have to imagine is just like a whole other experience. A good one, but not one that I would say that I've had. No, okay. I what see. about you? Mm. Do you feel like you've had that? Well, uh, I don't know. I think... Like the what's coming to mind for me is um, that belonging is going to happen in a place where you feel yourself most recognized. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the queer community, that makes sense, right? When she talks about Afro-Caribbean because she came up and was shaped by all of that. Um, the dynamic, the behavior, the beliefs, the food, the music, the dance, like... So when she's back with that, like her whole self is recognized. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like trying to think about places where I feel like Mm -hmm. my whole self is recognized. And this is going to sound like, I I don't know what it's going to sound like, but I remember uh, after graduating, well, I remember attending college and feeling like I belonged for the first time. And then I remember I was out of school before I went back to get like my MFA for about seven years and I felt incredibly lost. (laughs) And there was something about returning to that. um, I don't know if it, I don't want to say academic, but it's like the kinds of conversations and the way of digging deep into questions and really reflecting that I find in academic spaces. Um, It's actually feels like it's becoming harder to do that in academic spaces as they as like colleges at least and universities become more geared towards like job creation and job um like preparing people for Mm -hmm. workplace life um 
But in any case, like that has always been a, a kind of space that I feel like, um, like my whole self is, uh, recognized in, I mean, not everybody on the outside has to see it looking in, but I feel that way. Like, I feel like my whole self can show up. Um, this is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, and this is community-supported radio. We also stream live from WVLP.org, and the station relies on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. So please consider supporting the station by visiting the website wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax deductible and we here at Listen Up Welcome Project Radio would sure appreciate it because we enjoy doing this show. (laughs) (laughs) So we'd like to stay on the air. Um, So today we've been playing stories from our archive that take us uh, geographically away from Northwest Indiana and I don't know, are we ready to, to play the second story then? Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to say anything about it, Willow? Uh, yeah, so this is the story that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, they're talking about their experience in Northern Ireland, and this one is titled War Zone. I grew up in a, a small town called Murray, County Down in Northern Ireland, and I grew up in the height of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, and it was a very charged and difficult time and a very difficult place to um, grow up. It was a war zone, effectively. Newry, my town, is a, a nationalist town. So in the conflict, it's on the Catholic side, not the Protestant side. And so we, the town was occupied by the British army. And that meant that there, there was a checkpoint at every entrance and exit point uh, from the town. There were various army checkpoints within the town um, and that the streets and the pavements were lined with British army soldiers in their full fatigues with sniper guns uh, leaning behind sandbags. Of course, it became completely normal. We went to school and just walked past the military you know, <laughs> leaning on the sandbags and slightly stepped over them on our way to school. It was a matter of course we would have to wait in a traffic line of for a half an hour, 40 minutes, while the, the military asked us to get out of our cars. And I remember all five of us being in the car um, and and my mum challenging the soldiers and and basically saying, you think I've got nothing better to do than uh, I've got five kids in the back, my boots full of shopping, I've got to get them home, I've got to make their tea. Do you think I've got nothing better to do than answer your questions about where I'm going and where I'm coming from? She's like, where do you think I'm going? Where do you think I'm coming from? And sometimes my mum would engage the soldiers in a conversation about the conflict. And when I think of it now, it was really quite bold. But But often the soldiers were very, very young. They were like 17, 18. And of course, they had no concept of where they were and why they were there and so my mum would engage them with she would say what age are you and where are you from and what do you know about about here and it was just mortifying for them and uh, mortifying for us that pathetic thing of the child wanting to conform and not feeling the same as everyone else and not feeling like your mom or your parents are sticking their head above the parapet or being different or difficult Of course, I don't think that now. I look back with tremendous pride at the fearlessness of my parents in that situation because my dad was a greengrocer and a fishmonger. He delivered vegetables to people's houses. So we often had to go into areas that were very strongly pro-IRA, the Irish Republican Army, which were the military uh, wing of Sinn Féin and who were fighting for independence and fighting for the retreat of the British Army. So my dad was often driving into those areas and he sometimes was apprehended. There were often hijackings where they would try to take shopkeepers' vans or goods to help them in their cause, if you like. And my dad has told several stories over the years about challenging people or uh, standing up Um, and standing up also to to the British Army because often they would want to buy things 
directly from him and he would say, I cannot serve you. I will be seen as someone who's in cahoots with the British army and it puts my myself, my family, my livelihood at risk. Often the British army would try to exert their will over that and not really accept it. And my dad often challenged them on that. Of course, in retrospect, I have a sense of their integrity, their political standpoint. They weren't pro-violence, they weren't pro-IRA in any way, but they were nationalists, my my family, and they, they did not believe in the occupation of the British in our town and in Northern Ireland. And I think one thing to say about Northern Ireland and my town is that it is incredibly rich culturally. People working at a very high uh, level as musicians, as dancers, as performance makers. And so I feel I really grew up in this small town that actually was a hub of creativity. There was something about the vitality and the engagement in that that I guess was a profound antidote to the external situation that we were in. Irish dance absolutely defined my childhood. I I was very serious about it. I competed. I was like an Irish dance gymnast, really doing competitions every every month. And of course, it's part of the fabric of society there of uh, coming together and listening to music and doing um, Kaylee dances. Um, That's part of a social way of being. I suppose that's the legacy for me of growing up in Northern Ireland, fighting for my own sense of identity that isn't a cliche or isn't one that's imposed on me from the outside. With the presence of the British military or the occupation, there's a kind of sense that we were always defining ourselves in relation to something else that we didn't want or someone else's view of ourselves. I feel there's a legacy around the capacity to stand one on one's own ground and, and say, no, this is who we are and this is what we stand for and this is uh, what we can do. This is WVLPLP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, and you're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. Today we're playing stories from the Welcome Project archive that take us geographically farther afield and also that have two creative storytellers, uh, both of them in theater. Um, speaking about their childhood growing up and the way that the culture that they have in their neighborhoods um, really defined and prepared them for their lives as as creatives, as adults as well. And the two of them um, I interviewed together because they had a project that they did together during the pandemic. So if you're interested in hearing how their personal stories come together to a larger creative project, you can find their story, Connective Tissue, at our website, welcomeproject.valpo.edu. All right. So um, when you, what's normal for the storyteller <laughs> growing up? She uses that term, normal. I guess it was just normal. So if we're just reviewing, um, yeah, what does she see as normal or learn to take in as normal growing up? Mm, the one thing that stood out to me was the British army soldiers and their full fatigues and sniper guns just and leaning behind sandbags. Oh my gosh. And just like, I guess sort of getting stopped at what I assume is like checkpoints that are happening and getting questioned. And the fact that this is happening so often that, you know, it just becomes part of her life. That is a scary version of normal. Mm -hmm. Life is just built around like, yeah, it's going to take 30 to 40 minutes to get through the checkpoint because they have to stop and make everybody get out of the car. I think it stands out so starkly to us because we haven't had experiences of that yet, at least. Um, But there are certainly other places in the world where that is also a normal everyday thing that kids just come up in absorbing feels like the mom must have had an experience of some life prior mm-hmm. <laughs> such that um, there's an unwillingness to take it on as normal um, based on the storyteller's reproduction of the, the mom. I'm wondering what you all, like how, what stood out to you about, about the mother's story and, and what do you think the storyteller means about the child finding it like so pathetic that's... <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, I love this woman. <laughs> um, so cheeky. And then she's just like being confrontational. But I think it's like it it doesn't seem too much. But when you imagine that there's people standing around a checkpoint with large guns and then you're just like, you think I have nothing better to do than answer your questions. I just I love that. That's so I don't know. She's got a lot of vitality there. And I think it's so funny that, like, as a kid, the storyteller is talking about, like, being resistant to, you know, her mom sort of going against the grain. Because I I can think of that, too. But it's like my mom did that in a lot of, in a different, completely different way, like, not in a positive way, where she was just, like, a jerk to people. And Mm -hmm. I just remember being like, why are you doing this? Why are you like this? And so I I totally understand that. But... (laughs) I love that she sort of comes to understand after a while, like how, I don't know, like the, the integrity that it took to sort of like stand up and I don't know, be cheeky. I love that. She's also asking the soldiers that are like 17, 18, like, why are you here? Why are you doing this? What do you think about what's going on? I love that. Yeah, no, I second everything. I adore this woman. (laughs) She's fantastic. I'm guessing that the soldiers must have been from other parts of Ireland and like doing their tour of duty but I don't know if that's the case but something about the fact that she's like you know um like why are you here do you know why you're here can we talk about what this means I mean I suppose it could just be to to bring attention to like is this really the kind of social situation we all as Irish want to be living in um but it also sounds like they might be coming from different parts of Ireland, so it's not as if they have a commitment to mm-hmm. the particular neighborhoods that they're actively mm-hmm. patrolling. Well, it's the British. Oh, right. So, so totally. it's not. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> it would be like English. Is Wales part of the British? It is uh, part of the uh, So UK. Maybe, some, maybe some Welsh folks, but it would be like people from England. People who are technically foreign, you know, even yeah, though no, you're technically totally right. Northern I don't know Ireland why. I just is a, made a British mistake. territory or whatever, <laughs> still to this day. Yeah, I guess I, the reason I, I conflated the two is that there's the Catholic Protestant thing, and so mm-hmm. that divides the Irish within Ireland, and so mm-hmm. somehow well, I was... Well, to the Irish's credit, that is also the British's fault, so... <laughs> 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 yeah, no, I mean... I don't know. I think of this in the context of like American imperialism a lot. Um, of this, this I have complicated feelings because you know, the speaker is right. These people, mostly men, um, are seventeen, eighteen. They don't know what they're doing, but also they are seventeen, eighteen, and they signed up to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, and the thing that you are doing, even though you are just like a simple cog in the machine, whatever, does right. is having a very real, very tangible impact on the people who are also just trying to live their lives in a place that is not your home at a place that you do not understand the context of the thing that you are doing. And there's just, there's a lot of ick in that for oh, me. Yeah. Oh, I have so many feelings. Just like that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, and what their level of buy-in the soldier's level of buy-in was or not. Mm-hmm. Well, and to an extent, that doesn't matter, right? Because they're there, but to an extent, it does matter because, like, we can assume that the bigger the buy-in... I mean, you... Maybe you should. Maybe I'm being ungenerous, but generally speaking, in my personal experience, not that this is my personal experience, but with other things, like, if you have an individual who the buy-in is bigger for that individual, they are more likely to be a little bit more draconian and a little yeah. more... Yeah, which is making... Everyday people who are just trying to get their kids home so they can make their five children home so they can make them tea life unnecessarily difficult and uh, traumatic. Yeah, well, I'm also thinking about her bravery because you Mm -hmm. don't know the buy-in of any particular soldier who's at a checkpoint. I'm assuming you're not necessarily seeing the same soldiers each time. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I just, I feel very nervous just listening to the story and part of that is my midwestern niceness and my conflict aversion and like i would want to keep things as placid as possible to just get through and this is not something i admire about myself (laughs) um but but yeah there is definitely a sense of 
something dangerous going on here. And um, it's interesting that it seems like for the storyteller, it's it's not about danger as much as it is about shame. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, gosh, you're so embarrassing, yeah, Being a kid who's just embarrassed. <laughs> oh. um, like the sort of norm, right? Uh, so most of us have experiences of our parents embarrassing us in some fashion. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it just happens to be standing up to soldiers at a checkpoint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, you're listening to WVLP 103.1 FM, and this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. And uh, this is a show, like uh, our show, where we is where we always bring up some Welcome Project stories we have on our webpage, welcomeproject.valpo.edu, in order to talk about them, unpack them a little bit, learn from the wisdom of our storytellers. We're always very appreciative of their trust and trusting us with their with their narratives. And today, um, in this half hour, we're listening to a storyteller from who was born and raised in Northern Ireland. Um, and it was during the time of the troubles as she, uh, identifies them. Um, what do you see as fearless or what does she see as fearless in her parents when she's looking back as an adult? So if as a child, at least for her mom, she's talking about feeling mortified, um, then looking back as an adult, she's like, it's totally different, of course. Um, and she calls them fearless. What do you, I mean, I guess we've talked about this a little bit with the mom already, but how about with the dad? What's fearless in him? I mean, like it or not, um, and I don't take issue with this. I would like to make this very clear. He is deliver. He is associating in a certain extent with IRA in a, in a way where he is willing to deliver them food and like help make sure that their basic needs are taken care of like as is his job and he's refusing to do that for the british occupation which i frankly love <laughs> um, i think that is such a wonderful form of yeah no i'm good thank you mm-hmm. um, but yeah i mean that's my my big fun sticking point so talk about that a little bit more though um reagan so i'm seeing that he's delivering in pro ira areas mm-hmm. But there is a way in which he has to stand up to the IRA, too, if mm-hmm. they hijack his delivery mm-hmm. vehicle. Absolutely. You know, he's got to make his living. He's got to do his thing. And he, um, I mean, at least the speaker says that they weren't super into the IRA as a whole. But he is willing to go into those areas and deliver food there. And then the British will ask to buy from him directly. And he says, absolutely not. <laughs> and I think that is so good. <laughs> I love that so Icon. much. <laughs> I mean, I think there's something to be said about, like, Allison, as you were saying, like, you know, with the mom at the checkpoints to just do something that's a little bit easier, non-confrontational, and just kind of, like, get through things. Like, the dad could be doing the same thing. Like, he could just be, like, I mean, we don't know necessarily, like, if people would see him as in cahoots with the British Army for, like, selling them goods, but... I mean, there looks like there is a choice here so to not supply the British Army with goods. And so there's, like, again, there's this, like, little bit of, like, a pushback that her parents are doing and her dad is doing that, you know, it's like he could just be self-serving. I mean, he could probably make mm-hmm. more money if he mm-hmm. sells to these people, you know. Like, it could it could serve him, but he decides to say, no, actually, I'm not going to do this, and I'm going to withhold whatever money I'm going to make from you because I disagree with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's pretty awesome. Well, and I think it also comes back to what we were talking about with the previous story with, like, the sense of place. Um, And, like, I don't know. No matter what, there will be social exclusion. And, like, he and his wife, and I assume hopefully their five children, I don't know, um, have chosen their in-group. And their group is that they are nationalists. Their group is that they do not agree with the occupation. And they are going to align themselves as much as they feel is appropriate with that. And that means excluding, you know, British business. Mm -hmm. And I find that very admirable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder if you think it's unfair that I also see that some of the fearlessness comes from putting themselves in between. Uh, Maybe that's the wrong way to say it. Like, um, the, the IRA and the British Army are not necessarily equivalent. And I don't think that the storyteller is making them equivalent, but it does seem like one thing she wants to stress is how her dad in these, in these instances, because he wasn't pro violence, Mm -hmm. um, some of his fearlessness comes from being willing to risk offending 
in both directions. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you think that I'm overemphasizing that, but um, that seems to me a quality of fearlessness that, uh, like, I, I, I guess I don't know because I haven't studied the situation in Ireland, which this section of their history that she's talking about, to know, like, how hard was it to be a nationalist but not be pro-IRA? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be some kind of hint that if the IRA is actually hijacking, like, some businesses' uh, goods in order to help them in their cause, that there could be a, a kind of tension that they... Mm-hmm actually exacerbate or start like plant a seed for and then exacerbate between themselves and other uh residents that irish residents that would be nationalists too so but again i don't know enough about like how hard was it to be a nationalist and not be ira at the time Mm -hmm. but it seems like it's part of what she sees as fearless no they're definitely walking that line and it is a fine line and just like you were talking about with like experiences in other places all it takes is one soldier who thinks that the mom is being a little too sassy all it takes is one soldier who says or commander whatever who decides like yeah no i'm going to take your goods and you are going to ira or british i'm going to take your goods and you can let me pay for them and deal with that or i can just take them from you it just takes one and they are walking a hard balance and a lot of people in areas like like in the situation they're in in areas as described here have to walk that balance and they have to walk that balance however way they are best equipped to i don't yeah i know will and i are joking around and talking about how you know how iconic um, the parents are here and they are they're they're really cool but yes it is you're right it is important to acknowledge that it, it just takes once for all of this to come tumbling down in a very awful way yeah we actually don't know some like of the outcomes if if that ever happened that he did lose goods on some particular <laughs> encounter there's almost no way um, he did it right like there's almost no it's way. hard to imagine <laughs> yeah like he this poor man definitely got robbed at least once like uh, there's no way around it this uh, poor woman definitely got like yelled at by some shoulders shoulders some soldiers <laughs> at some point you know like it it comes with it comes with the the deal i guess the deal that they never agreed to but that they are finding themselves in you know the part that i think is interesting is the idea of like there are these two opposing sides and and the parents sort of come down in the middle there with like the sort of like they're not pro-violence but they are nationalist so they're sort of like defining themselves somewhere in the middle and i think about like today just like going on social media, like like how common is it for people to just sort of like go down the middle like that? Like it's usually like very one way or the other, like very red or very blue. And I and I had an experience like I don't know a few weeks ago where I was reading a tweet, and like I was just reading this whole thread of these like people going back and forth, and they were arguing about something that I couldn't necessarily decipher, but they were both being so cheeky to each other, and like I couldn't. But I found myself getting frustrated after a few tweets being like, I don't know who I'm rooting for at this point. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just like, like, I don't know, the language that we use, like, it just, it feels so easy to want to like definitively go to one side. And it's so, it felt like, I remember thinking like, this is so weird. I haven't like felt this in a while to where I'm reading so many things and I don't know which side I'm on. Like, it's just, so I wonder like how, I don't know how it felt to be in the middle like that and thinking today, like how many people aren't in the middle mm-hmm. I don't know well to the question of belonging I feel like we're starting to live in a world where that the quality of belonging that we seek is very reduced mm-hmm. to like who shares my specific ideology and in America right now it seems to be coming to like political ideology yeah um so that's a very sharp like set of boundaries around when you know you belong. I can mm-hmm. only belong with people who I share the same political framework with. And if I step outside of that, I'm putting myself at risk of not belonging in my community anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really small. <laughs> I feel like that's a very small definition of belonging. Like when I think back to the first storyteller whose belonging is culture and ancestry, like you can't st- 
step outside those lines. I mean, maybe you could if like you rejected mm-hmm. your culture somehow and um, like decided, I don't know, like to pass as white or something like that. Like maybe that is... Or even pass not as Afro-Caribbean just to try to be, you know, I don't pass as African-American. Yeah, yeah. So, but I don't... It's It still feels slightly different even in that case. It's like the community is still there. Mm-hmm. Or that sense of belonging is still there waiting for you if you want it. Mm -hmm. But that is not like these kind of lines that are being drawn around ideology and whether you belong to that ideology. It feels like much more punitive if you go outside of it. Mm -hmm. And so that increases the sense of like wanting to stay inside the lines and not be in some kind of middle ground. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I have kept myself from trying to do some sort of reflections on social media around things like um, George Floyd's murder or Jacob Blake's shooting or now Kyle Rittenhouse's trial or Ahmaud Arbery. Because I feel like if I want to say anything nuanced, it doesn't have a place to land. Or actually, I feel a sense of threat like I will be cast out by mm-hmm. progressives yeah. if I try to um I I don't even I don't even think that I'm taking another side I feel like I'm just trying to expand my compassion a little bit to understand the full complexity of a situation and how um people do take stands that I actually firmly disagree with. Anyway, it seems like to try to communicate that, and social media is not the forum for it anyway, because there's just not enough space for it. But I think what I recognize is the sense of like, I'm actually putting myself in danger of being judged mm-hmm. by the people that I want to affirm mm-hmm. who I am. So mm-hmm. I'm, I am feeling like that sense of, I will outcast myself. <laughs> and it's, and it's scary. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like, it feels like once you try to do something a little bit more nuanced, it almost feels like that's you. Like if it doesn't, like if I'm viewing that as a progressive and I don't know you, then I'm just like, well, if she doesn't believe this, then that means, you know, maybe she doesn't believe in gay marriage and maybe she doesn't believe Mm -hmm. in equal rights and maybe she doesn't believe in equity. You are creating the most bigoted mountain out of the most (laughs) small nuanced molehill. Yeah, it's just like, it's so true. This like one like response that you would want to do, it's just like, if it's not so within the language of one side Mm -hmm. and it's just, and it doesn't completely land on one side, then it's just like, well, do you not stand for anything on that side? Yeah, I saw saw this, this tweet the other day. And this is not a polite tweet, um, but it was basically like, I'm so tired of white liberals. They have no conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this person was was saying ultimately was that um, people have relied really heavily on like, there's like this progressive version of, well, my black friend says type of deal, like mm-hmm. in pick insert, like, like minority group there mm-hmm. where like, it will be like, well, I have had, I am. It's basically you have assumed that everybody of a particular culture has one experience and that one experience is of the one person you know or of the one like public figure that you really admire. And then if it goes outside of that, you're like, no. And then it will completely switch over when you get a new friend or a new really admired public figure as opposed to building mm. like an understanding of what an issue looks like for various types of people. Uh, you are just incapable of having your own thoughts on it and incapable because you are so scared of looking incorrect and that's not a critique on anybody but just Mm -hmm. that like it's insane how like powerful that is where it's like i am so scared of being viewed as like the wrong kind of progressive or like the wrong kind of like lesbian or the wrong kind of woman Mm -hmm. that yeah even the leftists are waiting for waiting for you with their little pitchforks (laughs) (laughs) Um, that is a striking image for us to end on today. Um, and before we head out, we want to encourage you to tune into WVLP for um, a six-pack documentary that's been airing over the past few weeks. Valpak Plus tells the story of VHS underrepresented students at the high school in their own words. And I think, actually, um, they might be on episode six, um, or that might just be wrapping up. But if you um, 
are interested and missed any of the episodes in this six-part series, go to spotify.com and use the keyword Valpoc Plus, V-A-L-P-O-C Plus, to um, find the documentary on Spotify. So that's it for today. Uh, thanks for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are also open for business at their locations downtown on Lincoln Way. So visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks again to Michael and Kelly Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. Again, they are brand new underwriters to the show, so thank you very much for the support. You can find us online at welcomeproject.belpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support WVLP and our show, we would truly appreciate it. You can do that by making a donation at wvlp.org support.